Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, the, the more we discuss the world and the way it works and the way we perceive it, the more labyrinthine it appears. Yeah, yeah. The more layers that you peel away, the more layers you find underneath, right? Right. You look back on a time, pretty much like the post-World War II era, like that was a time when there was all this optimism that we had things more or less figured out, that we were we were venturing into this age where everything's going to make sense, diseases mm-hmm. we're going to defeat, space we're going to travel, everything was within our grasp. And then we started learning more and more, and things become just more and more complicated. I mean, that's kind of a simplification, but but that's kind of the... Uh, the story-shaped version of it. And, no, uh, yeah, yeah. It seemed like science was emerging to the degree where we could really get a handle on things. Right. And, you know, psychologically, we had Freud and Jung, and we were really trying to be introspective and say, ah, yes, this is what drives human beings. Right. And it seemed that humans were the lords of the earth, that we, we this was our planet, we had it knocked, and we were going to be the, uh, the, the poster children of this planet moving forward. But... Uh, the, the topic we're going to talk about today really sheds light on just one of the areas where humans are not the top dogs, a topic that really illuminates how the organisms that operate uh, in the shadows and at a much smaller level may just be the rulers of the planet. Right, the the organisms inside of us. Yes. And we've actually talked about this before, whether or not we actually have free will. And we've talked about this from a psychological perspective, like, oh, uh, did you know that a lot of people who are named Denise tend to be dentists, or dentists tend to be dentists? And this was in David Eagleman's book, right? Yeah. Uh, recent book, Incognita, that talked about all these sort of subtle machinations going on that really inform our worldview and the decisions we make. But we've also talked about little critters and yes. how how we may actually just be, you know, walking transportation for these guys so that uh, we, we can just spread critters among the earth. And this has become even more apparent recently with a recent article that's been in the news. I believe that the, ta- the, uh, the name of it is How Your Cat is Making You Crazy. Oh, yes. And this is by Kathleen McAuliffe. And this was in the March 2012 edition of The Atlantic. Yeah, this, of course, deals with good old Toxo, ta- Toxoplasma Gandhi. Toxoplasmosis being the infestation, if right. you will. And this comes out up every year, too. I wrote a bunch about it for um, Animal Planet a couple years back. Yeah, uh, you you have actually talked about this before. Mm-hmm. Um, but, y- yeah, definitely uh, there's, there's a driving force now, though, around the topic because there are so many different studies that are beginning to support this idea that this parasite is doing some really crazy shenanigan stuff with not just animals but perhaps even humans. Right. There's a simplistic way to think of parasites, and I think this is a way we often think. We, we think in terms of, oh, I have a leech on me. Oh, I have a mosquito on me or a deer tick or something. Uh, and and this, these are external parasites, but the model is simple. There's a weakness in my defenses. Something is stealing energy from me and then moving on. It's mm-hmm. a bloodsucker. Uh, and that's a, that's a pretty straightforward con. But something like T. Gandhi here, T. Gandhi is playing the long con. And yeah. and has and it's so intricate. I mean, this is like um, what was the Kaiser Sose movie? Oh, uh, the unsuspect, the real the usual suspects. Usual suspects. Yes. yes, you know, it's it's like that level of a complex plot going on, mm-hmm. to where when you begin to see the full life cycle of this organism and see the the full scheme, as much of it as we can understand, you're really odd because it's not just a matter of something. Oh, it. 
You've got a little room for me to live inside you. I'm going to live inside you where it's warm. No, it's 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 far more. No, you're right. If T. Gandhi was playing Vegas, it would be like the ultimate grifter move. What we're about to describe. Yeah, it would be a Parasites Eleven. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, here we go. Okay, so let's talk about uh, T. Gandhi, Toxoplasmosa Gandhi, and let's talk about what it actually is and why it is so fierce. Yes. So Toxoplasmosa gandhi is a protozoan parasite, and the only known definitive hosts for T. gandhi, that's what we're going to call it from here on out, are domestic cats and their relatives. And that's that's why our feline friends have been in the news lately, too, and a little bit demonized, uh, which we'll talk about later. The cats. Yeah. The cats, yeah. Yeah. Well, in general, they're kind of uh, demonized. They steal your breath, right? Yeah. Well, that's what they say. Yeah. But old T. gandhi here makes the the cat, the feline, its primary host. This is where it reproduces. This is the the mothership for T. Gandhi. But its life cycle takes it to other creatures as well. Mm -hmm. So this fantastic journey begins inside spaceship cat, inside the mothership, all right? Mm -hmm. The new toxoplasma, they multiply in the lining of an infected cat's intestine. Right, so the cat eats something, picks up the parasite, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Gets in the tummy. It reproduces in the cat. Mm -hmm. It's the primary host, again, so that's what goes on here. And then the toxoplasma young, which are called oocysts, ship out on the feces, okay? (laughs) Okay, all right. Um, They're little sailors. Right, and this is a common practice among parasites. Um, That's the outgoing highway from most organisms. Mm -hmm. So if if you need to get out, that's the way you got to go. And this is shed for like one to two weeks or so, right. you know, in the feces of the cat. And any creature that encounters this uh, stowaway-laden waste is uh, susceptible to accidental infection, mm-hmm. okay? So this means, you know, everything from touching a litter box, walking around on barefoot on infected soil, infected mm-hmm. water, infected garden veggies, uh, where there's poop, there's a way. That's right. And yeah. so if you think of a bird or a rodent traipsing across a, a pile of fresh cat poo, then obviously that that's a great way for the parasite to hitch a ride now on, say, a rat. Right. Because that's what it needs to do. Ultimately, this parasite needs to return to a cat. Mm-hmm. All right? And it really, like, the, the rat is very important here. This right. parasite loves the rat. Yes. The, the rat... Also, you know, some, some birds, things that cats eat. That is its, its ticket back aboard a cat somewhere. Mm-hmm. So now it's aboard the rat, the bird, uh, whatever the uh, intermediate host may be. And eventually what happens, your pet cat corners this intermediate host, um, you know, in your cellar, uh, in your backyard, in the neighbor's yard, uh, wh- wherever it happens to uh, do its hunting. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever seen your cat with one of these animals, you know what happens next. It gobbles it down or gobbles half of it down and then leaves the other half for you to find on your uh, computer desk. Yeah, yeah, puts its head on a stake and says, look what I did. But when the cat eats this intermediate host, the cycle continues. Now the toxoplasma is in its system anew. It is returned to a primary host. Yeah, and so this is the coolest thing about this, or, or, or frightening, or whatever your perspective is, is that it returns back to the cat where those oocysts uh, transform into tachyzoites after ingestion. And that's where it becomes the adult version of the parasite. And it's really the only way that it can fulfill this life cycle, again, through the cat. Right. Just on its own. I mean, the cycle's kind of cool, but it's not you know, completely mind-blowing. Because obviously, cats eat mice and birds. So the circle is pretty simple. It's not completely crazy. Yeah. Until you start getting into the, at times, subtle manipulations that are going on inside the intermediate hosts. So when the cycle begins anew, 
uh, it's important, though, to stress that more than birds and, and mice are susceptible to this parasite. Right. It'll end up in humans. Little does the parasite know there's probably little chance that once it ends up in a human, that a cat will eat that human. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm, it, it happens sometimes, sure. But for the most part, feral cat hordes are not overwhelming humans on the train. As far as we know. I don't know. This could, this could be a plot by the cats yeah. you know, to infect us subtly. It depends how thorough they are, I guess. But, uh, yeah. but for the most part, this is kind of collateral damage. The parasite needs to return to the cat. It needs to get in a bird or a rat to do so, mm-hmm. but it'll try pretty much anything. Yeah, so think about this parasite. It's now taken up, uh, you know, home in, say, like an animal, um, and, the, and the tissues of an animal, usually the muscle tissues, and these little cysts are there. Mm-hmm. So how can it infect a human? Well, you could eat undercooked meat of an animal that has oh, those, yes, those yes. cysts in it. Because I mentioned the the litter box thing is, a, is an obvious, but, yeah, but yeah. Uh, there are more subtle ways to... Yep, uh, yeah, litter box. Even just, say, uh, stepping on fecal contaminated soil, mm-hmm. and then accidentally, like, swiping your finger on it, and then dipping it in your mouth, right? So think about that the next time you see children running around barefoot in the yard. Actually, kind of creepy, right? Yeah. Blood transfusion or organ transplantation mm-hmm. and transplantally from mother to fetus. Now, I'm sure that a lot of people have heard about toxoplasmosis in terms of pregnant women because that really is a concern in the medical community because if a to-be mother actually were to have toxoplasmosis, she could then transport that via the placenta to the fetus. And that really can cause a lot of problems, anything from blindness to uh, mental disabilities to brain damage. So that's usually how people know of this. But, okay, let's say that uh, it, it does occupy the brains of a human who is not pregnant. And, by the way, this is not as uncommon as you would think. Mm-hmm. It actually is just going to hang out there for the rest of your life in your body. All right. It's kind of dead-ended in spaceship human, but uh, it's going to stick around. Yeah, just, buried just in the... Just on the chance that a cat may eat you one day. <laughs> exactly. That they may finally get the world dominancy that they are looking for. Yeah, it's buried in your muscle and nerve tissue. And this is not, we're not talking about like a rare circumstance where, oh, they just happen to have a cat parasite. Because uh, you do have some situations where a, a parasitic infestation in a human is kind of a rare occurrence and causes all these problems. But uh, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimates that 22.5% of the United States, 12 and older population currently carries the toxoparasite. And estimates run as high as 95% in some parts of the world. So between right. 30 and 60% of the global population is infested with mean, this parasite. That is an incredible amount of humans infested with this, right? Right. And, uh, you know, just for comparison's sake, let me look at France, and that's upward to like 55%. And again, this is thought because uh, in France it's much more common to have uncooked meat or, you know, steak well, tartare. Uncooked, or, well, yeah, tartare. I shouldn't say uncooked. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it makes it sound like they're, the Frenchmen are running through the fields, like pulling down cows and horses and deer. With yeah, with with big fancy curly mustaches. Yeah. But no, I mean you know steak tartare. Some of the ways that the that meat is prepared. Wherever there's a tradition of rare to raw meat consumption. So if uh, steak tartare is big uh, in a region and mm-hmm. domestic cats are around, there's a chance that that's going to be higher. Right. Or if you live in conditions where you're, you're, the soil is contaminated quite a bit and you don't have, say, the means to have access to clean water, uh, of course, then infestation rates would be much higher. Um, but, okay, so uh, there's all this data swirling around. Now you know uh, the life cycle of uh, Taxoplasmosa gondii, and you understand that uh, us humans are far more infected than we probably ever knew. Right. So what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that, uh, again, the, the cycle itself... The ideal cycle 
of cat to rat to cat is is pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. But these guys try and game the process because they really once they they're in spaceship rat, right? They really want to dock with the mothership again. So they essentially pilot this mothership a little. Or they don't completely take the controls. It's mm-hmm. not uh, some sort of a zombie thing, though. You'll definitely see that situation play out in some parasitic infestations. But in this one, it's more of a subtle tweaking of the design functions in the rat. Well, it actually changes the behavior of yeah. the rat. And what we're talking about here is the rat's fear response specifically to cats. Yeah, so the rat needs to return to the cat. So what can I do as a parasite to uh, to set up this encounter, to uh, encourage my rat host to wind up in the belly of a cat? And indeed, the easiest thing is to, well, let's make this prey animal less afraid of its number one predator. Yeah, and actually, let's take up residence in the the rat's amygdala, mm-hmm. where we know that you know emotions like fear are hanging out, and let's do a little neural rewiring. Right. So this is like Ocean's Eleven, um, <laughs> Parasites Eleven. The uh, they're sneaking into the into the control mainframe to try and mess with the security system. Okay. And yeah. so if you think that we're we're completely nuts, we just made all this up. Again, this the article uh, in the Atlantic is great in in talking about this more specifically. And there are a ton of studies. Uh, one of which was conducted by Joanna Webster. She's a parasitologist at uh, Imperial College London, and she took an enclosure with rats and she treated one corner of each enclosure with the animal's own order, odor, excuse me, a second with water, a third with cat urine, and the last corner with the urine of a rabbit. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is not a creature that preys on rodents, right? Right. She said, we thought the parasite might reduce the rat's aversion to cat odor. Not only did it do that, but it actually increased their attraction. They spent more time in the cat-treated areas, the cat urine areas. Mm-hmm. Okay, and naturally, they would have gotten one whiff of that and been out of there, right? So she and other scientists have repeated this experiment with the urine of dogs and minks, which also prey on rodents. And the effect was so specific to cat urine, she says, that they call it the fatal feline attraction. In a sense, the parasite makes the rat sexually attracted to death by cat. Yes, they're, they're creating suicide rats. Yeah. Really. And again, this is all pointing back to this uh, disconnection of fear circuits. Mm-hmm. And neuroscientist Robert Sapolsky and his colleagues found that T. Gandhi disconnects these fear circuits in the brain. And again, that's this is an ex- uh, somewhat of an explanation for these rats losing their aversion to cat odor. Okay. Now, if I if, if I may return to the Parasites 11 analogy here, yeah. um, let's say we want to game the process even further. Okay. All right, okay, so we, we've sort of shut down security. But the rat is um, and or a bird, these are creatures that evolved over millions and millions of years to effectively evade uh, the predators that want to eat them. Mm-hmm. All right, so we tweak things so that they're attracted to the urine of their predator. But I wonder if we could do more. What if we made them clumsy? What if we uh, messed with their motor skills? Yeah. There are studies that suggest that this is exactly what happens. A little parasitic reprogramming of the brain, and they're able to impair the host motor controls. So uh, the parasite cuts the host's chances of avoiding the cat's jaws mm-hmm. and claws and winding up in the belly. It just gains it a little more. And not only that, let's add to the mix that not only do you lose your fear response and your motor control slows down, but let's uh, let's say that when you do get a whiff of that good time cat you're in, mm-hmm. that your dopamine center in your brain starts to go nuts. Oh, wow. It's like you've released something into the air vents yeah. to, to, uh, to sort of pacify the security patrol at this... Uh, hypothetical casino. There you go. And you're attracted to it. And what do you do? You walk right up to a cat and say, man, I just just had a whiff 
of your cat pee. I like your... what you got going on there. Uh-huh. But why don't we hang out? And then the cat, of course, eats it. Yeah. Because, because the cat, in a little bit, we'll discuss some possible sort of side effects for the cat of the toxo infesting it. But for the most part, yeah. the cat is unaffected. The cat knows what it's doing uh, when it comes to killing things and then pooping things. So, uh, so yeah. there's not really any need to, to tinker with that model. Cause, cause if you have a cat, you know that it eats and poops very well. Say what you will about cats, but they've got those two things down. It's like yeah, one of do. four things they dig. But it's the prey animals, uh, in, in the cycle that they, they tweak. Yeah, that's right. And so as soon as that rat who has lost all sense of fear presents him or herself to the cat, then you know the Tigandi inside are going, you know, booyah. <laughs> this is exactly what we wanted you to do. But what's fascinating about that is that, that that parasite is in the rat's brain really tinkering with it so specifically, you mm-hmm. know, to cat urine and not another animal urine that it's attracted to or, you know, losing the motor coordination. I mean, that all of that is fascinating to me. Yeah, and it turns our previous understandings of how the world works on its head, like the idea that at this small level, these creatures that we don't even think of as having intelligence are are manipulating the whole show. You know, they're like they're like tiny gods, right? And now this situation is unfolding, and there's there's this one researcher, this one scientist who looks at this, looks at all these different cases of parasites changing behavior in insects and animals, and says, "Hmm, you know, but I've been acting kind of strange lately." Ah. I wonder if I could be infested with something that's changing my behavior. And uh, we're going to take a quick break, but when we get back, we're going to talk about whether or not we are also controlled by unseen forces, a.k.a. parasites. We're back. And like we mentioned before, uh, the, the parasite, T. Gandhi, wants to get inside a cat again. And it wants to do that by getting inside a rat or a bird. Mm-hmm. That's the cycle, cat to rat the cat. But this journey will often lead it into humans, which generally is a dead-end journey. But it is still going to use all of its skills to try and get that human into the belly of a cat. It's still programmed to change the host and to manipulate the host towards its ultimate goal. Again, the digestive system of a feline. So, human infestation by T. Gandhi also appears to result in some mind puppeting. It appears. Uh, you know, the jury is still somewhat out, and there's quite a kerfuffle about it, but uh, it seems to be some, some pretty serious evidence that there's tinkering going on in the human mind. In fact, biologist Jaroslav Fleger, in the 1990s, as I said before, he had begun to suspect that a parasite was subtly manipulating his personality. For instance... He would cross the road in the middle of traffic without any fear. Uh And in moments of panic, he observed others freaking out while he remained oddly calm. He realized that he also didn't have much of an investment in his appearance. He seemed sort of unkempt, introverted. And uh, he remembered learning about reckless ants whose nervous systems had been reprogrammed by flatworms. So he remembered this, this instance in which instead of heading underground, which ants should do uh, when the temperature drops. These ants would actually scale a blade of grass and chomp down on the top and just hang there in the wind until it was gulped down by a predator. And this was, of course, the tapeworm, um, the tapeworm's doing. Ah, so he'd heard of a similar con job in the parasite world, mm-hmm. and suddenly he realized, what if I am being conned? Yeah, what if, yeah. what if the parasites are working through me uh, in their their master plan? 
Yep. And so on a whim in 1990 at Charles University, where his colleagues were searching for infected individuals to test out some new kits to see how fancy they were, they found that Flegger tested positive for the parasite. Uh-huh. So his hunch was right. What that led to is this guy, like, doggedly trying to understand this parasite and how it behaves in humans. And a bunch of other people of late have, you know, jumped on this ship to try to figure out what's going on as well. So he was a man with no fear. He was, yeah, he was a man with no fear. And so, again, you know, looking at rats, and he, he looked at rats too, and, and was looking at the same thing, this, this disconnecting of the fear center and wondering if his own crazy behavior and walking out in the middle of traffic was related. And mm-hmm. he found in, uh, in one of his studies that this had a direct correlation to people in traffic accidents. Yes, according to a 2009 study from Charles University in Prague, toxoplasmosis infection could make one 2.5 times more likely to wind up in an automobile accident. Specifically, if you happen to have rhesus-negative blood, which means you're missing a protein on the surface of your blood cells. Mm -hmm. And this comes around to the tinkering we were talking about earlier, that uh, motor skills have been adjusted. Uh, The fear of death has been adjusted. Mm -hmm. And uh, combine those two out on the road, and uh, you can make, I feel like you can make a definite case that uh, you're more susceptible to uh, an automobile wreck. Yeah, that's right. And the two Turkish studies have replicated his studies. Again, these are people who have been involved in traffic accidents, mm-hmm. and the, the uh, accident victim's blood uh, was taken. And again, it was found two and a half times more likely to be in a traffic accident if you are infested with this parasite. Yeah. Amazingly enough, the Prague study suggests that between 400,000 and a million of the world's annual road deaths might uh, be due to toxoplasma. Okay, and that, that's, where, of course, where people start to put up the red flag and yeah. say, oh, okay, don't worry, you can still drive a car, let's try to get more data on this and truly understand whether or not it's affecting yeah, yeah. our and behavior it, it, to that degree. And if it's just, you know, mere correlation between right, the two. Right, right. Then Flegger also started to say, well, you know, I wonder if humans, like rats, also have a delay in response time. And he studied that. He found in one of his studies that there was a slight delay in response time for a group infected with T. Gandhi in comparison to their study counterparts. Uh, both groups were asked to press a button when they saw a white square appear against a dark background. So, yeah, the actual delay time is pretty subtle, but is very distinct that there was a delay in people with T. Gandhi. Flager also noted that T. Gandhi men and women developed subtle personality changes. The men were more prone to be introverted, suspicious, and rule break, rule breakers, as well as sort of unkempt, while women were more outgoing, trusting, rule abiding, and paid much more attention to their appearance. And he determined this by first giving them personality tests. Then he began to test the emerging data that came out of those personality tests. So, for instance, um, he would uh, test trust levels by saying, hey, here, drink this unidentified liquid. Mm-hmm. And again, the T. Gandhi men were more likely to be very suspicious of this, where the, whereas the T. Gandhi women were like, hey, okay, sure, I'll have a sip of it. He also gauged the amount of time subjects spent with friends and uh, how subjects valued their appearance. Another potential uh, byproduct of infestation by T. Gandhi is depression. There's some research into this from the Stanley Research Medical Institute of Maryland. And they found that people in infected with toxoplasma are at greater risk of developing depression. There was even one case, and this was a study uh, published in BMC Psychiatry, that studied a depressed 32-year-old male 
who only responded to antidepressants after being treated for toxoplasmosis. Mm-hmm. It's one of these cases where we're, we're not sure this is actually part of the grand design of the parasite because they right. have, they've also there's some studies that that think they, there might be some mild depression in cats mm-hmm. when they have an acute infestation of T. Gandhi in their systems. But it's another reason to be, I guess, a little. Uh, Paranoid. Well, and the, the, the article also points out the behavioral differences among genders, and they wonder, yes. like, why could that be so very different? And one of the because theor- it seems to make women more fun, right? I mean, <laughs> more spendthrifts, yeah. more yeah. Uh, and uh, they're out having a good time. They're they're more promiscuous. Right. They're, they're just living it up. Whereas the men become sullen, shut in men with bad attitudes and worse hygiene. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Just sort of like a little bit retreating to their caves, I guess you could say. But yeah, I mean, the, the idea is that the, the T. Gandhi relating to depression mm-hmm. does increase anxiety in people and that these are just sort of the coping mechanisms that come up when you're experiencing anxiety. Right. I don't know that I've ever been really anxious and decided that I would just drop 500 bucks and then go out and be super social, but I don't know. I mean, you know, this is, again, this is a bit of the mystery behind T. Gandhi and how it's working in humans. And one of the things that was brought up in this article that's that's also pretty intriguing um, is schizophrenia mm-hmm. and cat fancying. Yeah. And the, how they all relate to T. Gandhi. You're sort of referencing the stereotype of the old cat lady, the crazy old cat lady, right? Well, has well. Has lots of cats and is a little addled. It has been pointed out that schizophrenia didn't really come onto the scene until the 18th century, about the same time that people began keeping cats as pets. Huh. And this became like a, a something that just spread throughout the world. It became like really cool to keep a cat, to domesticate it in that way, in your ha- keep it with you in your house, where you mm-hmm. have obviously much more interaction with it a.k.a. feces on your hands, sort of. I mean, not directly all the time, but there are more opportunities for infection, right? So there is a psychiatrist by the name of E. Fuller Torrey, and he, along with Robert Yulkin, a neurobiologist at Johns Hopkins University, surveyed a subset of 70 epidemiology studies from the mm-hmm. 1950s. And these weren't just random papers, these studies. They were pretty rigorous in terms of their scientific standards. And they found that schizophrenic patients with toxo are missing gray matter in their brains. Okay, and that sounds like, what? Yeah. Um, you know, it just, but it's a little bit more complicated than that and subtle. Tori and Yochan found that the mental illness is two to three times as common in people who have the parasite as in controls from the same region. Okay, so... This is giving us some interesting evidence that T. Gandhi could perhaps affect your brain and the reasons for depression or schizophrenia or anxiety. The thing is, is that a lot of schizophrenia patients show shrinkage in parts of their cerebral cortex. 12 of 44 schizophrenia patients who underwent MRI scans, the team found, had reduced gray matter in their brain. Mm-hmm. Okay, And the decrease occurred almost exclusively in those who tested positive for T. Gandhi. So what Flegler and a lot of people are starting to interpret those results as is that the parasite may trigger schizophrenia in genetically susceptible people. So the genetic part comes into play because what they think is that... Uh, that this connection with schizophrenia running in people's families is connected to genes that may have been passed down 
with a deficient immune response to invaders like T. Gandhi. So it's not a situation where cats are just pooping out schizophrenia juice. <laughs> right, right, uh, right. This is a subtle distinction. I'm glad you yes. brought that up. It's not just like, hey, a human's infected. Now I'm going to have a kid, and I'm going to have a kid with T. Gandhi and schizophrenia. No, it's more like, to use the, the Parasites 11 analogy, the burglars are crawling through the ductwork into the mainframe. They're tweaking the security on the host. And then, oh, you happen to have a switch over here for schizophrenia, and they hit it with their elbow. Yes, because they know that genes that are most commonly associated with schizophrenia relate to the immune system. Mm -hmm. Okay, so all it means is that you could have had these genes passed down, which would give you a weakened immune response to the parasite if you happen to be infected with it, which may relate to triggering schizophrenia. This is one of those things like you could not make this up if you tried, right? So this is what is rattling a lot of people's cages because we don't really quite have a complete understanding of how this works. Yeah, that we're beginning to understand the scheme that is playing out at the, the parasitic level. And it can be intimidating and, and a little scary. Like when I first researched the topic uh, a couple of years back, it kind of messed with my relationship with my cat for, for like a right. couple of weeks because yeah. I'm like, I'm suddenly looking at the cat like, you... I thought you were my friend. I thought we were cool. But you may have a parasite that might be changing me into a frumpy, grumpy shut-in, <laughs> uh, know, d- destroying my relationship with my spouse, trying to get me in a car wreck, mm-hmm. and ultimately in a cat's belly. <laughs> while right, right. while making my already suspect motor skills even sloppier, I felt kind of weird about it. And I was kind of like, I don't really know if I want you sleeping on the bed yeah, while yeah. I'm sleeping on the bed. But, but we, we repaired things after that. Um, well, and the, the thing is, survived. right, it, it, there still needs to be a lot of research on these different aspects of T. Gandhi and how it works in humans, right? To, mm-hmm. to Nobody needs to really go off the deep end and get tested right now and, and yeah, be afraid it, of their cat. Right. Because it's easy to, to self-diagnose with any anything, really. Right. Because it's, with something like this, you think, well, I don't know. I haven't gone out uh, and been social lately. Maybe I have a parasite. I'm not that good of a driver. Maybe I have a parasite. It's, right, right. It, it's easy to, to self-diagnose like that. But what I ended up telling myself, I ended up looking at that figure, uh, like, you know, thirty and six, between 30 and 60% of the global population. I started looking at the amount of time I had already lived around my cat or other cats, and, I'm, and I ultimately had to decide, well, yeah, if I got it, I got it. If I don't, I don't. It's Well, and, and I don't know if this is going to be comforting, but it, this sort of infestation and, and, and behavioral changes, uh, it's not really that uncommon. It's not just this parasite. Right. It's there- not a case where, oh, I am completely in charge of my own destiny, and then in moves the parasite and changes things around. I think right. we've, we've, we've done enough podcasts on similar topics that I, I think longtime listeners already have a good idea that there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of burglars in the ductwork already <laughs> right right there are other microscopic puppeteers right i guess you could say to say nothing behavior. of the own complexity of our own uh, cognitive process and how free will and subsurface uh, cognition are already altering uh, well not altering but dictating the way we perceive the world and perceive ourselves right we already know that you know our bacterial cells outnumber our our cells you know 10 to 1 so mm-hmm. we we really are just the the hosts hanging around to that point too let's look at the flu right there are studies uh, that say that perhaps the flu changes our behavior there's one study at Colorado State University that showed that when subjects were given a flu vaccination essentially stoking the subject's immune response. They doubled the amount of people they came into contact with during the time that they were maximally 
contagious. Mm-hmm. So these were introverted people in the first place who, you know, they started to keep tabs on um, the behavior of these people who had been infected. Mm-hmm. I'm doing some air quotes on infected. Um, and, and they did find that they were seeking out more and more people to commune with, which sort of leads us down this path of is the flu encouraging us to be more social so that it can spread itself. The flu. You can see that one coming. Yeah. And then there is a woman named Janice Moore, who is one of the flu studies researchers, and she also looked at other human pathogens like AIDS, syphilis, and herpes. Uh, And the reason she did that is because at the end stages of AIDS and the outbreak stages of syphilis and herpes, people report an intense craving for sex. Again, the idea is that the pathogen is rewiring the host to spread itself. Mm-hmm. It's not enough that the, the life cycle is in place, but let's tweak the host organism in a manner to optimize its spread to other host organisms. Again, I find a little bit of comfort in, in, in just knowing that it's not just T. Gandhi that oh, is yes, because perhaps... that was a very comforting statement you made there. <laughs> right. Well, no, no. I mean, that's that's all. That's a bit depressing. But what I guess my point is, is in, and your point too, is that there are a lot of other burglars bungling the ductwork, as you say. Yeah. And in there already. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And here's another thing, too. Uh, again, don't look at your cat suspiciously quite yet. Um, indoor cats pose no threat because they don't carry the parasite. They're not outside being infected by uh, the parasite, in theory. Yes, in theory. I've also seen some studies that are really making the case that you would have to have had this cat in a, an impregnable fortress its entire life for it not to have the potential to be exposed. Okay, so, okay. So, so don't so don't suddenly freak. Oh my goodness! If my cat darts out the door, he's you know he or she's going to be in toxo. No, like no, no. Yeah, you know, as for outdoor cats, they show the parasite just for a couple of weeks of their life, typically when they're young and they've just begun hunting. Okay, mm-hmm. and so that's that's a pretty brief period, and. So one of the things you could do is just make sure that you keep everything super clean during that time period. If you do have a new cat, a new mm-hmm. kitten that is out and about hunting around. And of course, you know, washing your hands, you know, yeah. handling cat litter, all of that stuff is just common sense. Don't let them on the dinner table. Scrub it, your vegetables. Yeah. Eat cooked meat. Or yeah. Pretty well cooked. Yeah. You know. I think it's like it's 160 Don't eat out of the cat bowl. Don't have a picnic in the sandbox that all the neighborhood cats poo in. That kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, common sense stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Don't make cat poo popsicles. Um, all kinds of stuff like that. But here's the thing I think is kind of interesting is that Martina Navratilova. Oh, tennis player. Famous tennis player. Mm-hmm. 1982. She's playing against Pam Shriver in the U.S. Open. She loses miserably. And she turns around and says, you know what? This is the reason why I <laughs> lost taxoplasmosis. Because she had it. She says that she... Eight cocktail nuts that were contaminated by a cat. Don't ask me how, why that happened. Yeah, I was, I remember reading that too. I'm like, how did, how how these nuts get toxoed by a cat? Did you see the cat like peeing in the nuts? And then you like absentmindedly ate some and like, oh crap. Maybe these are like coffee beans, like in goats, the same sort of idea that you could get these super gourmet nuts if they pass through a cat's rectum first. I mean, it sounds like a situation where, I mean, if I screwed up, or did something that, that I didn't think was in keeping with my normal behavior or performance, I could probably make a case, oh, I bet I have Toxo. And just based on the numbers we were looking at early, there's, what, a you know, 30 to 60% chance I'm right. 
Yeah. And then I'll play out. And then I can have the medical uh, report say, here, there you go, Toxo. That's the reason I was dogging it last week. I wonder if Martina Navratilova looks at this and says, yeah, I've been saying this for years now. It changed my behavior. Mm-hmm. I feel vindicated. It wasn't just that I had sour grapes from losing. There's a real problem here. And I totally remember that time period because I spent like $10,000 going out all the time, trusting everybody, whooping it up. Yeah. Well, she just needs to be careful about about mixed nuts is all. Don't we all? All right. Well, let's uh, let's call the robot over here and collect a little listener mail. Here's one I received from Heidi. Heidi writes in and says, Hello there. I love the podcast. It is one of my absolute favorites. I had to share a few incidents I've experienced that are related to your recent podcast on art. I am a classical musician, and I have had many opportunities to be overwhelmed by music, art, poetry, etc. When I was about 22, I visited the Buffalo Museum of Art, and went to see the Picassos uh, on exhibit. To my surprise, when I viewed the Cubist pieces, I was almost ill. I had such a visceral reaction to the work that I couldn't explain, and I still vividly remember it over 20 years later. I thought there was something wrong with me, or that I was just lacking culture. The second incident occurred when I visited the Sistine Chapel in Rome about 10 years later. We decided to take the long museum tour. Big mistake. The artwork is mixed together and crammed in in there like a Victorian living room. By the time we hit uh, the Raphaels near the end of the tour, I had my hands cupped on the side of my face to block out everything but the path ahead of me. I ran out of out of there because I couldn't stand another minute. Again, I thought I was insane. I'm so fascinated by this topic, and it actually makes me feel better knowing that other people experience similar strong reactions to artwork. Anyway, I thought I'd share. You and Julie are great. Heidi. No, oh, thanks, Heidi. Yeah, that's that's Stendhal syndrome. This is people feeling overwhelmed by the artwork in front of them, and I couldn't help but think about that secret room, the purported the uh, secret room in the Sistine Chapel with all of the the naughty uh, artwork. Uh, I don't think and I've sculptures. Heard. I'm not up on this. Oh yeah, yeah. So it's supposedly it's all like the nefarious stuff, and you know, during the years, I think they've rotated things in and out depending on what the idea was of that particular sculpture, whether it was pagan or whether or not it just had naughty parts and lots of them. Uh, but can you imagine if all that stuff was, was rolled out? Yeah, just crammed next to each other on the wall. Yeah. I mean, I, I like to think that the priests go in there every once in a while and just feel a little Stendhal syndrome just looking at all of that amazing, nefarious artwork. Here's another one that we received on the uh, topic of Stendhal syndrome. Uh, this one's from Kyle. Kyle writes in, I wanted to write in about your Stendhal syndrome podcast. I can't say that I had an instance of losing it or going weak in the knees while looking at a piece of art, but I remember the first time I had that kind of experience. It was my first time uh, in Europe. I was doing a study abroad program in Italy. Within a day of our arrival, we went to the Vatican and I saw La Petita di Michelangelo. Got to do it right. Is that, is that Italian enough? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. If I, if I tried to do the Italian, it would just sound Australian. Uh, and then it would, it might lapse into a bad Russian accent. Uh, I remember vividly that I was just so taken with the piece when I saw it, I couldn't believe how realistic it was. Your podcast made me think about this moment because I had only been in Europe for less than 24 hours and had been walking through the Vatican. I'm sure that I was already under the influence of culture shock and overwhelmed by the size and grandeur of St. Peter's Basilica. I didn't have any real formal knowledge of the piece, and I do come from a Christian upbringing, and like everyone else on the planet, I had heard about the talent of Michelangelo for years as being a, a great artist, even if some of that knowledge was gained by a spark of interest drawn from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Any 
anyway, I immediately uh, bought the postcard of the statue at the gift shop, and I continue to have great appreciation for this and all of Michelangelo's work. Thanks for the great podcast. It's truly one of my favorites. Kyle. Cool. Thanks, Kyle. Having been to Rome a couple of times, I do have to say, like, I'm completely overwhelmed by that you, city. Rome, Georgia? Yes. No. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Rome, Italy. Okay. Rome, Italy. And, uh... I often wonder, like, if you are a Roman born and bred there, would you completely freak out if you went to America? And so if you went to Rome, Georgia. And if you went like, to Rome, oh, Georgia. Goodness, it's so... But on the flip side of the coin, like, if you saw the void or if you saw, like, the amount of strip malls or something, I mean, these things just obviously don't exist to, to a Roman, right? Yeah. Like, a strip mall, what is that? Um, I mean, because, you know, the, I've got bits of crazy, like, 800... BC architecture in my backyard. Yeah. Do they have something there called like strip mall syndrome? Huh. I you know I wonder if they do. I remember when I was first driving down to Atlanta on a semi regular basis, and I was driving from rural Middle Tennessee. Uh, yeah, yeah, rural Middle Tennessee, and uh, and you know I I'd been to some major cities a lot, but I, that doesn't mean I was necessarily looking out the window and really taking it in. Mm-hmm. But I remember just really looking at the sprawl. And I still get this, like, I'll look at the sprawl around Atlanta, and I'll think, who are all these people? Yeah. Who are yeah. they, and what do they do, and how, even if I'm downtown in the, the Midtown area, I'm looking up at these buildings, and I'm like, who lives here? Who are these people? And, yeah. and I, I get a sense of that everywhere I go. It's just kind of overwhelming at times to just to sort of stand back and try and understand these places that are folding out all around you. Yeah, and, and, you know, Atlanta has a really, a very particular character, too. It's a very wealthy city. So sometimes, I don't mm-hmm. know if you are struck with this, but I'll sometimes be like, who are all these captains of industry, and yeah. where are they getting all their money? What is daily life like for these people? You know? Yeah. Here's another uh, bit of listener mail. This one calling back to an ep- our episode on spontaneous uh, human combustion. This is from a listener by the name of Judy. Judy says, love the show. You make L.A. traffic enjoyable. Uh, <laughs> that's... That's a Thank statement. You. That's yeah. a statement. I had an experience with spontaneous combustion. We uh, had painted the kitchen and awoke the next morning to find the floor and counters covered in a fine soot. A pack of matches had ignited and burned the counter as well. My father, an electrical engineer, theorized that the paint fumes in the still room were ignited from a small spark generated by the refrigerator uh, cycling on. Interestingly, the fire alarm had not been activated either. There you go. All right. So there you have it. If you would like to share something with us, you can find us on Facebook and you can find us on Twitter. Facebook, we are Stuff to Blow Your Mind. On Twitter, our handle is Blow the Mind. Do let us know what you think about toxoplasmosis, about your cat, about the parasitic uh, infestations that may be puppeteering our brain even as we speak. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, and if you want to know the name of that article again, it is How Your Cat is Making You Crazy by Kathleen McAuliffe. And that's the March 2012 edition of The Atlantic. You can also go onto the CDC's website and check out more information about Toxoplasmosa. And uh, you can always send us your thoughts via email at blowthemind@discovery.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House of Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. 